Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it there. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I will down Swanfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you surely man? You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast with Owen McDevitt and Ken Early. I have to apologise because we are stricken with illness today. Why is that? We've got the fever, Ken. Oh, I can it's see you kind of fever. It's Manchester Derby fever. Oh, yeah, alternating <laughs> red and blue flushes. <laughs> Indeed. Um, yeah, good big game this weekend, don't we? Well, you would hope that the Manchester City players are feeling a few symptoms this weekend because for the most part... Uh, for the most part, in recent times, they they don't look like they have met much emotion at all, or uh, they don't really they don't really feel anything uh, when it comes to playing football. So hopefully they'll be shaken into shook, even into a bit of a uh, bit of action this weekend. It looks like a really happy, contented dressing room, doesn't it? Ah, they're all enjoying their lives. just a lot of um, successful young men in the uh, prime of life having an absolute ball. <laughs> um, they play get together and play an odd game. They might lose the odd game to a less talented group of players like Crystal Palace but hey in a way Manchester City were almost able to take uh, vicarious satisfaction from the happiness of the Crystal Palace uh, players supporters and uh, heroic manager Alan Pardew Alan Pardew who's buried Newcastle United in the table uh, since he took over Palace are, have soared above uh, poor old Newcastle Thank you take any solace from that I think he might actually. I think <laughs> I think Alan Pardew's probably noticed um, that uh, Palace are now looking down on his old club. I think he probably has. Newcastle, I used to manage them. But the point, uh, the point there being the happiness of of Manchester City, um, the way that they're spreading it around the league a lot. Um, who knows? Maybe now uh, they'll get the chance to make the uh, the other guys in their own city feel good about themselves. We're going to talk to a man from that city, hewn from Manchester Granite again, John Bruin, about the, the changing face of the Manchester Derby in recent years. Well, would you say Granite is Granite a thing associated with Manchester? I would always have said Granite was more, you know, Scotland. He's maybe Eastern Scotland. Um, okay, so maybe we could say um, woven from Manchester cotton. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it sounds awful, but it is... 
uh, historically more accurate. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and that's what's very important about these opening parts of the podcast. You just gotta, gotta be historically accurate. Richie Sadler's gonna be in studio a little bit later on. Aston Villa, um, Tim Sherwood. I'm fascinated by Tim Sherwood and his reign at Aston Villa. They go back to Spurs, and Sherwood has been stoking the fires when most managers would probably like to just uh, you know, forget about or be nice about their former employers, not our Tim. So we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Let's get into Ken Erdy's report on sport. Um, well, I suppose just to note that Cristiano Ronaldo has now scored his 300th goal from uh, well. well for Real Madrid. He in less than six seasons that he spent there, so averaging out over 50 seasons, not bad. I say well, I, I did see that's that right, and this show goes to the heart of the argument as to how blasé we can get about these things sometimes. I kind of saw... Now, I was in a bit of a rush to do something else at this stage, Ken, but I did see Ronaldo score a 300th goal in... Is it 288 games or something? something like that, yeah. So something on those lines. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And then moved... My, my little tiny football brain moved straight on to something else. That's ridiculous. It's one of the most historically amazing things that's ever happened. To continually... Do you remember when he went from Manchester United to Real Madrid? There was there was still a bit of a hangover from the days when he hadn't scored against some of the bigger teams for a while. Yeah, hadn't you know? And by the end of his United career, he was doing these things. But there was a while when people doubted him, and there was still just that element of Oof, going to Real Madrid, big move, big club. A lot of big players have failed there. Uh, from the moment he walked in there, this this was this. Ronaldo, nobody's bigger than Real Madrid except maybe Cristiano Ronaldo at the moment. Well, I mean, the what's becoming increasingly apparent is that both Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi, well, ultimately Messi, assuming everything, you know, nothing, nothing happens, um, are going to end up as the top two goal scorers in the history of of European League football. I mean, if you look at the, um, uh, uh, maybe not in the history of European League football, that's a bit much, but. In the history of the five um, top leagues in Europe, you know, if you look back through their entire history, at the moment the top goal scorer in, you know, England, uh, Spain, Italy, Germany, France, who has scored the most league goals in those competitions? Historically, yeah. Gerd Muller. Gerd Muller is number two, on he's one goal behind the man who is on top. Oh, that's not fair. That was an amazing guess by me. I'm one goal. I'm going to leave it at that. I'm going to leave it at Gerd Muller. No. You're gonna. You, I mean, I'll, okay. I'll give Eusebio. you Eusebio. No, Eusebio does not feature. He's not the highest Portuguese uh, player on this list. <laughs> the highest Portuguese player in this list is Cristiano Ronaldo. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, give me. Can, do you want to give me an era? I know. I know. Podcast listeners love when we just have these long guessing games about facts. Well, everyone's trying to think of it themselves, apart from the people who who, who are like, I know, I know what it is. And they're is. screaming, they're screaming down their phones at the moment. Guys. I can't believe he doesn't know this. Yeah. Does he get paid for this? <laughs> Lazy. It's why, I'm, it's why I'm sometimes wary of doing this kind of thing on air again. People um, might start thinking you don't know anything about what you're Stunning level about. of ignorance displayed by at <laughs> Owen McDowitt on today's football podcast, that's hashtag why, poor. That's why I took my Gert Mutter shouting and ran with it. Um, well, look, Mutter's not bad. 365, a league goal for every day of the year. Uh, but this man uh, ahead of him has a goal for every day of a leap year. And he scored the goals in two leagues, England and Italy. That narrows it down a bit, doesn't it? It's going to be Jimmy Greaves. Yes! Oh, it's Jimmy Greaves. Well, that was uh, finished off with alacrity there by Owen McDowell. Ah, It's for all you haters out there. <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy Greaves is the top man. But Cristiano Ronaldo is... is um, Let's say about a season and a half, well, two seasons at current rates from, from catching Jimmy Greaves. And presumably he's going to play for a bit more than two seasons. Maybe the rate's going to go down for Cristiano. 
but he's probably going to play more than two seasons. So he's going to finish above Jimmy Greaves, Gordon Butler, uh, Bloomer, Dean, Honest, Ronaldo. He's passed out Shearer. Messi, I think, is still behind Shearer, but not for long. Like, maybe for another two weeks or so. Um, so that maybe is something to put them in perspective. They are actually going to be the top guys ever. And when you look at the, the, the names on the list, obviously... Muller is the most recent player, apart from Ronaldo. And, you know, he stopped playing, what, you know, around 1980. Um, then, you know, guys like Dixie Dean, you know, this guy is like... Oh, yeah. That, that, that you would have thought, is the era of, of uh, massive gold tallies, but not anymore. Liam Brady uh, wrote a book when he was about 24 in 1980, uh, around the time he was leaving Arsenal, uh, which I read in the last few weeks. And he said um, he was... One of his chapters was about great players. And Jimmy Greaves was in there, and it struck me that the guys who played in in and around Greaves' era, Giles in his book The Great and the Good, I think talks about Greaves as well. Certainly, we've chatted to Giles about that before. They seem to there seems to be this unbelievable respect for his finishing ability for Greaves. Other players envy what he did, and people find it hard to explain. It just seemed to just calmness and knowing the right angle they'd say that you look at him and he looks physically like an amazing player it was just unbelievable at, uh, mm. at scoring goals again. yeah and I mean he's obviously one of the guys who's uh, who's unlucky that uh, the sort of TV broadcasting technology or maybe the importance given to I mean it's they had it's like they had the technology but it's not so anyone was really bringing it to football stadiums like who would who would film these prowls you know, at their uh, games. You know, it wasn't something <clears throat> that was necessarily documented uh, to the highest standards at the time. So a lot of his uh, uh, his best moments are on really grainy footage. It's like you can't you can't see. You know, he it's 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 unfortunate. It's something something I suppose that all those players of that era have have in common. I mean, even Pele. I mean, if you look on YouTube for Pele, you'll see some absolutely amazing things. You know, but it's still, you start to see the same clips quite soon, you know what I mean? There's, there's not actually that many of them, considering that this guy um, was, you know, phenomenal for 15 years. Yeah. Um, not a lot of it ultimately made it onto, uh, made it into the record. Anyway, uh, Ronaldo, blah, 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 where are we? Oh, yes, Mario Balotelli at the other extreme of things. Balotelli criticised uh, for ruling himself out of the uh, Liverpool, uh, the Blackburn-Liverpool game, the quarterfinal replay last night which was won by Liverpool with a goal by Coutinho um, so they're going to play Villa in the semi-final which is the weekend after uh, after this one after next yep. do you say next I'd say this weekend yeah, next weekend um, Balotelli anyway apparently ruled himself out um, you know this was kind of disclosed by Rogers. Uh, this is it's happened a couple of times now. He said the same thing after the Arsenal game. Balotelli said he you know, declared himself unfit. Um, Robbie Savage declared uh, him a pathetic uh, disgrace. <laughs> Balotelli, I mean, it's Balotelli then goes on Instagram and puts a photo of him. He he sent, essentially sends a message to Coutinho saying, "Magic boy, grande, uh, nothing nothing to stop me. Watch my team winning." At least this time you know the real reason why I'm out. Missed the pitch so much. And it's a picture of Balotelli with a sad face holding a thermometer, which is showing a reading of 38.7 degrees, indicating... Uh, high? In, yes, it's high and in, indicating fever, 
presence of either Derby fever or just Derby <laughs> fever. Manchester Derby fever. No, uh, he. Well, I think that would be probably a little hotter, if anything. Oh, probably right. forty-four to forty-five it's, degrees. It's unmeasurable. Dangerous, right. dangerous. High. I mean, thirty-eight, thirty-eight point seven degrees indicates biotherapy either has a you know a middling, a mid-range fever, or simply warmed up the thermometer by some other means. <laughs> uh, Classic get-out-of-school trick. It's not, Stick this under the pillow? It isn't quite uh, solid evidence. Although, you know, why would we, why do we doubt him? Evidently, Mario Valtelli feels as though people do uh, doubt him. And his, you know, he, he put up that post a while ago. You know, it was just him talking to the camera saying, you know, do you know me? Do you know me? Do you then shut up about me? You know what I mean? And so he's feeling a bit embattled. Yeah. Um, uh, you, you might have made a case that Brendan Rodgers was feeling a bit about him, but obviously he's now won his most recent game, so he's, he's once again... He explained... Remember there was this... There was this uh, when we were talking the last time, it was, the reports were coming out on the Monday that reports had started coming out. I think there was the Mirror had a story saying that uh, Rodgers had held a meeting after Liverpool were thrashed by Arsenal, and he'd said, you know, what's going on here? And sort of uh, called out a few of the players, you know, what are you doing? Whereupon, apparently, some of the players stood up and started giving it straight back, right? So this is never necessary. It's usually not thought of as being a good situation. Mm. But that's not necessarily the case. As Brendan Rodgers explains, a lot has been made of that meeting, but the review was very important in how we want to work. I'm a coach who speaks openly to players. If you don't review and analyze, how can you get better? So essentially the uh, <clears throat> the meeting seems to have clicked Liverpool back into gear, uh, is uh, Rodgers' version of it. It's something we've done all year. I wonder how open those meetings are. In terms of... Well, does he... He says open. Is he the type of manager who... And players who played under him say he is, he is a very good man manager and he does know how to deal with people. But I wonder... Not all the players. No, except, yeah. yeah. Like, like any player, any manager is going to have... There's going to be different accounts. People will take him in different ways. But he, I'm just wondering how open it is in the sense that does he allow himself to be criticised? His management style to be criticised. Yeah, I mean that's that's but that's what, what an open meeting is. It's like yeah. you tell me two way criticism. Yeah, your the, your tactics are wrong. Your use is man, well, yeah. something more constructive than that. Hopefully, but I I would doubt there's that many Premier League managers who operate in that manner. Yeah, I mean it's it's a very difficult thing. A manager would have to feel pretty strong about it. it would, be, would have to feel pretty about strong himself. in his own position yeah. to allow that to happen because you know. If things really are going bad, I mean, what happens suddenly if, if the, essentially have a player mutiny, you know? If, I mean, you assume at any point that a few of, a few of the players in your squad are nursing their little issues, you know? So not all of them are perfectly happy with the way things are. But what happens if they all suddenly connect up? Um, you know, it's fine as long as they're just nursing it in their own private uh, you know, in their, in their own hearts. But suddenly, if, if if this becomes a general thing, then maybe even the ones who who have been on your side suddenly start doubting that. Hang on a second, have I been? Is this has this guy been pulling the wool over my eyes? So I guess that's why you'd, you'd be reluctant to have a a very open meeting in that sense. Maybe it's just Rogers' media policy and media performances, but he seems to have this very absolute idea of where his team is at at a given time. They're either completely through the roof they've fixed everything or they're at this unbelievably low ebb he's making toast until four in the morning <laughs> is it not just that they're a, a reasonably good team who aren't a great team and therefore have good results and have bad results I think that I think that might be it I think that might be it although uh, what I do, I mean I, I do think when we, we've talked about this before that he, he does maybe have a bit of a tendency to, to go 
uh, I don't mean go with the flow as in, you know, he's a kind of a, a weak man who does whatever seems. And that's not what I'm suggesting by that. But like he, whatever the tide, whichever way the tide is going that time, that's how Rogers actually feels. So, you know, Liverpool, like say last season, when they'd won all the games. He felt absolutely invincible, you know. Yeah. And then when they'd lost a few earlier on this season, he was, you know, he was seemed to be cracking up. But he does never miss an opportunity, I think, to make points about himself and how he how he works. I'm a coach who whatever it is. Yeah. So like, you know, obviously when Liverpool won last night, he had to make the point. By the way, that review meeting that we had, that was That's that a was a very good idea. Um, what has he got? Uh yeah, the Manchester Derby coming up. Pearl Manuel Pellegrini, I mean, um this stories in a few of the papers at the moment saying Pellegrini safe for now but by that it seems to mean they're not actually going to sack him now and install Patrick Vieira as the manager until the end of the season he'll be given until the end of the season uh, but it looks as though they're probably going to get rid of him which is you have to feel maybe a little bit sorry for Manuel Pellegrini is it really his fault uh, I, I have to say I don't think it is uh, this is a manager who Reached the once reached the Champions League semi final with the equivalent team in Spain to Bolton Wanderers, right? Which were who are Via Real, who were uh, one Riquelme missed penalty away from getting to the final against Barcelona in two thousand six. Uh, I mean that was an amazing achievement uh, in management. Uh, got to the quarter final with Malaga and was knocked out by this ridiculous Borussia Dortmund. Two goals in injury time, one of them being offside. You know, uh, he hasn't been very lucky, but these are these are major achievements in management. He's come to Manchester City. He's won the league in his first attempt, and then I think really been let down by a team that's that's essentially no longer really that interested. I mean, what they should be saying, in my opinion, is saying Pellegrini is a is a great manager. Unfortunately, we can't say that about these players anymore, and we're going to replace a few of them. And maybe let him decide who he wants to bring in. Uh, it seems as though that's not going to be uh, what they do. Although you never know, maybe a big win against uh, Manchester United. Manchester United. We'll get onto the, the derby more detail in a few minutes. You wanted to mention Kieran McDonald? Mm. Yeah, Kieran McDonald last night. Uh, very. Uh, I mean, we were talking about the goal scorers uh, 366 goals for Jimmy Greaves. Um, Kieran McDonald hasn't scored any goals in the five major European soccer leagues. <laughs> He did, however, score four points on his club championship debut at the age of what age? Yeah, this is a conversation. This conversation we had afterwards with with Kieran. We were chatting away, and this nugget came out. Uh, he was fourteen years of age. Fourteen years old. Four points by the fourteen-year-old debutant. <laughs> I'm not sure you're allowed. You're not, you're not, not allowed. Sure you don't put fourteen-year-olds in there anymore. His point was, you, you, I think you you have yeah. to be eighteen now to play at that level. Yeah. Uh, he was I don't know about 18. 14. Well, it certainly... Uh, yeah, how, 14 how annoyed must his marker have been? Oh. <laughs> I wouldn't say it was the last time that the marker heard about that particular day out in the club championship. That's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. I knew the place. Clough, as he calls me, Ravi, didn't know them. He said to me, what can you do that the boss hasn't done? You the boss. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. But there's no way you can win it better. Why not? Lo- no, 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 no. But that's the only hope we're, we're, I've got. We're, we're, we're doing lots for matches. But that, well, I can only look straight. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. Clough, as he calls me, Ravi, 
Now that might that might be you know aiming for utopia, and it might be, might mean being a little bit stupid, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? Uh, we're good. We're very good because you bring cakes. I did. I brought cakes. What are they? They're incredible. They're little Oreo cookies stuck in the top of. Well, I was walking from the car park to here and I just walked past the stall and, and to be honest, I wanted a cake. <laughs> so I thought, well, if I bring in six all together. <laughs> it would have been rude to come in and just eat them in front exactly. of us. Exactly, so we're I get a cake. Yeah. We're now all just awkwardly looking at these cakes, by the way. No, everybody too polite to dig in and have the first one. How do you feel about pork pies, Richie? Pork pies? Mm. Mixed feelings. Yeah? Why do you ask it? Just um, because Tim Sherwood's been talking about pork pies. Oh, go on. Ah. Uh, I, like, I, like, I like this segue already, Ken. I don't know where it's going, but I like it. Seamless. Tim Sherwood uh, is the manager of Aston Villa, but he used to be the manager of Tottenham. So they're playing each other this weekend, and Tim Sherwood has accused Tottenham Hotspur of telling pork pies. Well, actually, he says porkies. He says, um, it's not what's done. They denied making contact with managers, but those managers were saying they were being contacted. He says, it is not protocol, it is not what it's done, but it's not up to the manager to make that decision, it's up to the club. Someone was telling Borkies. This is uh, his uh, opinion. So this is when he was still managing, he's saying that, uh, oh, they denied that they were talking to these other guys, but I know they were. The other guys being Louis van Gaal, uh, who, who said, yeah, you know, Tottenham have been on to me, probably go there. At the end of Publicly, the World he Cup. said that. Yeah, he did. Yeah, and, <laughs> and Frank De Boer. Yeah, Tottenham belongs to me, but I'm not. I'm really not interested in the job. Don't worry about it. I'm going to stay at Ajax. The couple of lines that jumped out at me was, "It's not what's done, and it's not protocol." In, in the world of professional football, it's absolutely what is done, and in all but writing, it is protocol. When you know you're not happy with the manager you've got, you immediately start the search for his successor. All clubs do that. It, it's the responsible way to run a club rather than get rid of a, get rid of your manager Saturday evening after a defeat and then have a, have a rushed board meeting that night. Say, right, lads, what, what do you reckon we do now? Yeah, but if I'm Tim Sherwood and I'm seeing these other managers being interviewed and saying that they've been offered my job, I'll be pretty annoyed. Oh, I, I, I don't think he's wrong to feel annoyed or a little bit hurt or maybe a little bit embarrassed that other people are being blatantly that his job is being touted about to other people and those people are publicly talking about it. That can't be that pleasant, but that's what happens in 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 the game that he's in. Yeah. To say that it's not done, that's that's just wrong. I, I don't even think he believes that. He can't he, he's been in football maybe too it, long. Maybe it shouldn't be done. It's it's, it's not the done thing. Or it's not nice it. when it's done to you. Yeah. If he said that, I say well, I agree with that. I'm, I'm going to say that when you go from being the technical director to taking over as manager, you know, and then you can't really complain when it turns out the club. I mean, he he was the technical director. Villas Boas was the manager, so Sherwood was obviously touting himself for that. Oh, you're saying there's no loyalty to Villas Boas there? No. And, he, and here I'd wonder, in his spell out of work, if at any point a club approached him about a job. Would he have put the phone down and said, no, I notice you still have someone in that job and I think it's inappropriate that we're even having this discussion. If and when you replace that or you get rid of that manager, by all means give me a shout, but ethically, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy with this chat. You sound dubious as to whether any manager 
Well, maybe some managers, but you, you don't you don't feel that that is a done thing to put down that, that phone. No, it, 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 again, you have to realise the context of professional football. It, it that's how things are done. That's how deals are done. Like even you can extend it to even approaching players who are under contract. Tapping up, it's not even called that anymore. It's just it's just what's done. Mm. You, you you do that because you're always trying to get ahead, and you don't want to be in a scenario where you're left without a manager for any length of time and you're unsure of what your options are so before you get rid of them you need to know what your options are and that involves a discussion To be fair there were three days between the sacking of Paul Lambert and the hiring of, of Tim Sherwood <laughs> it could have potentially been done in that three day period Yeah You think? If your uh, generous interpretation would say that that's enough time for to have a chat and say I like the look of this club I wonder, sign up what, what, do you, what do you actually make of uh, Sherwood Richie because he has, I mean, okay, this is what he's done since he took, took off from Lambert. Two wins, four defeats, and a draw. That's in the league. And also got to the FA Cup semi-finals. Semi-final is going to be next uh, weekend. Um, is, it the, is the real issue around this, not necessarily the rights and wrongs of what he's saying, but the fact that he's saying it, right? This kind of, to me, this sums up Tim Sherwood and his media policy. Most managers would say, I had a great time at that club. Played for them, managed them, loved them. It didn't end well. We, we move on. Whereas Tim Sherwood says... Bastards! You know, I can't believe Lying what they did to Tottenham. me. They stuck the knife in, and he's about to bring his club to them. I, it's what I like about Tim Sherwood. I gotta say that it's just all out there. It's all out there. He doesn't see. There's no switch with him. There's nothing in there that suggests that this isn't the right thing to do. When in in an era when a lot of players and a lot of uh, managers are media managed within an inch of their life, is there? Should we be rejoicing at Tim Sherwood's forthrightness? Yeah, well, I suppose it is different, and I remember even listening to him talk about his touchline demeanour when he took the Tottenham job, because he was so animated and expressive, and, and, and he, he, I remember he gave an interview one day where he said, you know, that's just me, I'm passionate, 500 games into my managerial career, I can't see myself being any differently, and he kind of made some snide remark about, you know, I could sit there and take notes and sit with a suit and try and look clever, and people would say I'm really mature, Um but yeah, he has that thing of just coming out and saying, this is me, this is what I think, this is how I am, I'm not going to change. I think it's what you want, going into a match against a former club. Yeah. If I was, if I was supporting Tottenham, I'd actually probably like the fact that uh, Tim Sherwood, it just spices things up a little bit. He's, he's actually almost uh, sending up his own uh, image now. I don't know if you've seen this, but have you seen the footage of him hurling his jacket to the ground no you know, the oh, the, oh, he, he did that he, before I remember him doing it that in was the top top of he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's been doing it again right but almost like in a, in a, in a pantomime kind of way and then the BBC reporter said oh I saw you threw your gilet to the ground <laughs> and Sherwood said it's not a gilet they've sold out of gilets oh. uh, that's, uh, that was actually a jacket <laughs> but otherwise that's his thing now yeah but you know he, he it's uh, it's like he's become such a cult figure he's almost impersonating himself at times now yeah. I think yeah, but this is his thing. He says he wants to be. He, he he's he doesn't hide at all that he, he's passionate and emotionally involved, and and even he, he he spoke about his conversation with Jack Grealish and his handlings with Jack Grealish, and and again he said uh, just a quote that jumped out at me. I read it before we come on here. I I want desire over I take desire over ability any day. Right. And he went on to explain, you know, the desire with a bit of ability, blah blah blah. You need a certain amount of ability, but. When I hear that, I just always say that that sounds like crap. Really? It just sounds like the thing that you're you're playing to the the to the gallery a little bit there. That it's just, I think 
people want to hear that or people supporters want to hear that so you think I'll say it but it's, it's nonsense I want desire over ability what the hell does that mean I guess it means that any player who gets to Aston Villa has a certain level of ability or they wouldn't be in the professional football ranks and what separates them then is the guys who actually really want it I know I'm speaking cliches here but I'm trying, yeah. to, I'm trying to get out what, what he means I guess that, there's, that he's, he comes across a lot of players who clearly are good enough I mean there's loads of players that are, that are good enough to play in the Premier League that are probably play, not play there because they don't have the desire that some of the, the guys there do and I, I, I think why maybe that I was a little bit irked by that because mm. I think that is how I, I've pigeonholed Sherwood since he came out I just think he is all passion and all desire and all emotion but when I look for actual substance or ability I kind of left scratching my head going I, I haven't seen that bit yet although uh, considering how badly they were going he has got them they're in a relegation fight obviously but they have a cha- good chance of uh, surviving he's got them going in the cup they had that incredible moment against West Brom with the pitch invasion mm. scenes that I just haven't seen in Villa Park for, forever probably is, yeah. he not, is he not doing a decent job? Well, I think you've, I think he's better than Paul Lambert. Certainly better than Paul Lambert at the end. Yeah, I mean, I just kind of felt with Lambert, it wasn't as though I really got the sense that he was, he was trying anything particularly uh, out there. You know, t- it wasn't as though tactically Villa were playing amazing football. You know, it wasn't as though they were, they were tr- even. I couldn't even see Villa attempting to change their failing pattern. You know, they, it was just kind of persisting, almost banging their heads against the wall, doing the same thing. Um, all with this kind of quite dour... I mean, to be honest, Tim Sherwood may only be uh, a raw, uncontrolled, surging torrent of passion. <laughs> Not quite sure where it's going or what it's what it's all about. Yeah. But that's still better, maybe, than just the, the dour, deadening presence of Paul Lambert. Where Villa are now, right, they're 29 points with 32 games played. Uh, that's... Two was that? That's three points out of the relegation zone. Now QPR played the same amount of games. Burnley are there though uh, with the same amount of points as QPR, and there's also Hull by the way in between all that just outside. So just on Burnley, Richie, because I know you mentioned Sean Dyche last week in brief. Uh, he's a guy who you did a really good big interview on at the start of the season. You played with him for a few years. Uh, it's a, I would say it's quite a different character to Tim Sherwood. Completely different. Um, incredibly different approach to to management, to his job, to his handling of players. Um, everything about him is, is is completely different to my perception or, or the limited. Because yeah, obviously, I know yeah, you don't know Tim Sherwood. Very little you know about guy, yeah. Tim Sherwood. I've never met him, never been interviewed him, never played with him. So I, I'm obviously lopsided in terms of the info I have on both people. But um, like how, how Sean Dyche has gone about his job is the remarkable thing. He, he's when I met him. And I think we've spoken about this before. I, I fell into that trap of just seeing things the way everyone else did. I said, "Well, it's about money. Mm. How how much are you going to spend? What's your wage bill? Surely you realise you not get this. If you don't spend, you'll go down." And and he kind of just rubbished. I said, "No." He said, "How we'll succeed is by doing everything we do as well as we can do it." So he was all he, and and he just put to one side the whole argument about finances. He he just put it to one side and said, and he he gave a very good description of, of the pitfalls. Yeah. He gave the examples of other clubs, but he gave the pitfalls of, of you know what's involved in signing, say, a £12 million striker who will cost maybe £4 million a year in wages, you, you know, five-year contract. Add up all that, that's only one deal. Mm. And a £12 million striker, is he going to be the difference? Can you guarantee? All this kind of thing. And he was kind of, bit by bit, just, just 
pulled apart every point I had to make. <laughs> but he was all about maximising what he has and completely ignoring what he doesn't have. And a load of managers will point to kind of injury lists or, or the, their wage bill or not supported from the board or the transfer policy as an excuse for failure. He doesn't even entertain the notion of failure. Is that in part to breed confidence in his players? If his players are there, they get, they get them promoted and their manager is saying, these guys, these guys can do a job, these guys can, can help me survive if I just get the best out of them. Is that, is that almost, a, it's almost a, a PR thing for the players that the constant message he puts out is, we, you know, sure, if you got, I've got 10 million, I'd spend it, but we don't have it and we've got good players here. Yeah, well, the, the response from when in the dressing room, I spoke to Stephen Reid recently and he's, he used that phrase that you hear a lot. He's, you know, the players would run through a wall for him. Yeah. They, he just used that. He said that, and, and, and Reid himself really would have played with him as well years ago, but he, they all have that. And, and in a relegation battle, and as much as in any other kind of a battle in football, when you've got that from your players, like that's a phenomenal advantage. Um, so he doesn't... He, he, what he says publicly is, is consistent with what he says privately. Like He demands huge standards of his players, um, but, he, but he constantly drives home the message that if they do, if they give their utmost, they'll get the rewards. Yeah. And if you look at what they've got, like if you go back to the, the squad they have, the money they've spent and the resources they've got, at the start of the season... Nobody gave Burnley a prayer. Mm. No one gave him a prayer last season to stay in the championship, and they got promoted. The same this year. Like he's, and I, and I have to question myself now and again. Like, am I biased here? Because because I know the fella, and I'm trying not to get too 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 hung up by that. Yeah. But I, I think certainly if they stay up, like he, he's manager of the year. Ken, because manager of the year usually goes to, uh, I guess, a guy who well doesn't always go to no, the league champions. No, people you've got to achieve something. Yeah. Like, I think if if they stayed up, there'd be a good that, good argument for that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think you necessarily get it. Like I don't um, know what manager has done more with the players he's got than Dyche has with the players he's got in in terms of expectations and resources. Ronald Koeman lost a lot of players. Has Southampton up in seventh place. Um, I'm literally just looking at the league table now, trying to trying to come up with a if counter you, argument. But if no, I like your the, Dyche, um, yeah. If you look at the manager, the Premier League manager of the year. Um, it does often go like for instance it was Tony Pulis last year okay um, Brendan Rodgers was the overall manager of the year but Premier League manager of the year Tony Pulis Ferguson Alan Pardew Ferguson Harry Redknapp Ferguson um, yeah but Redknapp it doesn't necessarily go okay it goes to Ferguson quite a lot so it does go to the league champion uh, the, or, or another British manager right uh, if the league, if the league champion isn't the British manager, then it appears to go to another manager. <laughs> so, in this case, uh, Sean Dyche might be in a good chance. In fairness, Jose Mourinho has won it before on each of the previous times that he has yeah. won the title with Chelsea. So, um, if he was to win it again, then who knows? Burnley play Arsenal this weekend, but after that, their, their running looks all right. Richie, you've been having a look at the fixtures. I looked at their fixture list. Yeah, I mean they, they've. The, the really big one that stands out: they're away at Aston Villa on the last day of the season. So it's very possible that both teams will go into that knowing that the loser will go down. I mean, it could be sorted before then, but that... that yeah, I love those games. Yeah, just I mean, to watch. That's, that's, they must be awful to play in, but they're brilliant to watch. But the fixture list, we go past Arsenal this week, and Everton away, Leicester, West Ham, Hull, Stoke, and Villa. Mm. Like, that's not that difficult. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's... I'd, if, if you, and you compare it to the other fixture lists... You'd want that one. West Ham stuck. You're talking about mid-table teams there. That's what you want. Bang on. At like, the end of the team, season, yeah. you want a team that aren't involved in anything. Yeah. Villas are um, 
Tottenham away, as we were mentioning, um, Man City away, Everton, West Ham, Southampton, and then, as we said, Burnley. So even though they're three points ahead, I think there's still a good chance of, of them getting dragged back. The last point I wanted to raise with you was superstitions. Mm. And there's a context here, Ken. It, it's, it's Villa again. Jack Grealish has a certain look to how he portrays himself on, on the field. And there's a reason for that. Uh, apparently, yeah. His, uh, his uh, socks that he keeps rolled down all the time are a superstition that he has done for a long time. Just get the socks rolled down. Uh, yeah. Nothing's going to stop Jack Grealish rolling down those socks. Sometimes referees have told him, roll up your socks, Jack. Uh, but he uh, pretends to comply, but in fact doesn't. Right. So there you but go. But apart from Grealish's rebellious streak, did you have superstitions? I didn't. I had... Surely at least one boot on first and you know, no, no? nothing. I did. the only thing I always did before every game was I always had spaghetti bolognese the night before. Ah. That was it. That was as adventurous as my superstitions got. But there was a couple of lads. Steve Claridge had this routine. He, I think he would put. Yeah, there was a specific order that each sock and each shin guard would go on in each boot. Yeah. But the the most bizarre one that we had, and when you don't know this is coming, it's it's. It's a, like it's a bonkers experience Stuart Nethercott who used to be a Tottenham actually came to us and his pre-match routine he would go into one of the cubicles and he would vomit Right. so you would hear that and then he would start roaring feed the bear <laughs> so he would, you, would, you would be sitting I remember the very first time this happened so you're just sitting here and you go Gee, geez, is, someone get, is Nethers getting sick and then you hear feed the bear feed the bear and then he would emerge from the cubicle area, so he would always be wearing the same thing, just his shorts with socks and his flip-flops. So he'd be topless. And then he starts shadow boxing. <laughs> just starts punching the air. And you're looking at him going, what the hell is going on with Nethers? And then after a while, subsequent weeks went by and just went, that's just that's what, what he does. <laughs> and was the bear usually fed? Did Nethercott deliver the goods? I've, I've, do you know what? I've never asked him what that was. <laughs> or who's the bear or what the bear represents. Yeah, Richie, we leave it on that note. It's time to eat some cakes. Thanks Cheers. very much. Cheers. A flame hair, a flame hair, flame for truth, Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Owen. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. On sight. That's where it goes from. On sight. Thanks a lot, Pepe. How much do I give a fuck? Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now before you give it up. I, re- I didn't know where Richie was going with that at first because... I wouldn't think somebody vomiting before a game would be considered uh, a superstition. It's mm. a not uncommon feature of top-level sport that the, the the way nerves are dealt with from some players is to have to do that before a game. Messi, but, uh, Messi's a puker. Before matches, it's, oh, all the it's time. Eh? On, he's he's done it quite a lot on the on the field. Yeah, he's he, it's something which it's kind of well, it was causing a bit of worry for a while because he kind of kept doing it, and it's they couldn't quite work out why this was happening. Um, it does happen with him, Zidane, very famously, and the oh, yeah. before taking a penalty. But uh, yeah, but neither. I don't. Th- I would be very surprised, Ken, if Messi vomited before a game and then started screaming, "Feed the bear!" <laughs> and shadow boxing around that Barcelona dressing room. That would surprise me somewhat. <laughs> Feed the bear. Well, maybe he does. 
Maybe uh, no, he we definitely Feed would have heard make it. Obviously, the one that I would associate that phrase with is Sean Goater. Feed the goat. Yeah, feed the goat, and he will score. But that makes sense because it's a pun in his name. Yeah. Feed the bear is nothing to do with ne- what's the player's name again? Nethercott. Stuart Nethercott. Yeah, um, uh, and he's not a very bearish man, really. Um, do you do you remember him? He was he started out at Tottenham. He was, I remember him. Yeah, just uh, not especially well. Um, he had curtain. He had blonde hair and curtains and uh, dazzlingly white eyebrows. If you if he had been a bear, he would have been a polar bear, possibly a honey bear, but uh, certainly not. Uh, you know, one of those terrifying bears. John Bruin joins us now to move the topic away from bears and to talk about the Manchester Derby. John, we're looking forward to it here. Just. Whatever about the football side of it, the nature of this rivalry in recent times, have Manchester United fans grudgingly accepted that this this fixture has been revitalised by City's rise? I wouldn't say revitalised, I'd say changed. Um, it's always been, in Manchester, that's always been a big fixture, no matter where City were or United were in comparison with each other. Um and, you know, let, let, let's pull in the cliche of form going out the window that, you know, there has been the odd game where uh, United was slipped up. I mean, I remember 10 years ago or so, they got beaten um, at City's new ground a couple of times pretty heavily, even when, you know, they were still among the best teams in the country. Um, but certainly when City made that, you know, came into that money in 2008, uh, that changed the dynamic Um I don't know how many times I've written a piece saying this is the biggest Manchester derby uh, ever, but uh, it does. I suppose you have to say if you're thinking about it, it does. It, it does seem to increase in importance. Uh, I wouldn't say this is important as one say three seasons ago where they pretty much played a title decider, but in terms of the trajectory of both teams, where they're going, uh, where Manchester City is slipping to perhaps, or where Manchester United are recovering themselves, this is certainly a big one. But then again, as I say, I say that almost every time. One of the other cliches that has been trotted out over the years is that, uh, and this is even when Manchester United were winning leagues every year and City were absolutely nowhere, was that everybody in Manchester was a City supporter. You know, the United supporters came from everywhere else in, in the world, really. But, uh, you know, true true football people in Manchester supported City. W- was that the case? And is that the case? What's, what's the split in Manchester in terms of, uh, in terms of United City? Well, there have been a few studies carried out on this. Um, I think actually depends on who carries the study out. I remember. Yeah, one... United or City fan, it might slightly skew the stats a bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there was one which had like the the, the team with the most seat, the highest percentage of season ticket holders, um, was actually Manchester United, which rather uh, within thirty miles, which buried that that particular myth. Um, the thing is, if you go into into Manchester. Um, there are a lot of United shirts. There are a lot of City shirts. Uh, it depends on areas as well. I mean, towards the south of Manchester, uh, which is actually a city's heartland, as there used to be in Moss Side, um, you know, coming out of Stockport into into Manchester that way, there's a lot of City fans. Salford is obviously very red, though there are a few City fans, uh, city fans from there. Um, I'd say... It's a reasonably equal split. It's nothing like uh, the Manchester City fans would suggest. Um, th- there is a certain thing where City fans 
uh, have a certain mentality. Uh, Manchester United fans have a different mentality. So, um, what do you mean by that? What's the different mentality? Well, uh, I mean, I, I you know, City fans. Um, let's say the City fans before they became this big club had a certain thing which was they enjoyed the fact that they saw that their club was the um, the virtuous the, uh, the virtuous this. real club yes that's right Ken yeah the, the, you know the, tr- the true holders of Manchester f- football whereas uh, I think among Manchester United fans certainly in fact even in the days when they weren't really winning particular trophies there is a certain cocksure arrogance about some of the supporters, which is we're the biggest club in the country, and then when Sir Alex Ferguson delivered all those trophies, we've won all these trophies. We're the best team in in the country. We're the best team in Europe. You're just little city over there, and Manchester City fans perhaps reveled in that status as them being the true club. So maybe it fitted certain people to act like that, for, according to which team they supported. Yeah, I wonder is there a bad atmosphere at this game in the way that there is at the Liverpool uh, game, the Manchester United Liverpool game, um, where there's a lot of really nasty chanting and a real kind of just a general bad feeling. I think throughout the players, you know, uh, spreading from the fans to the players. Is this something that that happens between the? Uh, you know, when everybody on the uh, terraces is supporting a Manchester club, do, do you get that kind of venom? Yeah, I think I think actually you've got to, you probably have to disassociate it from the players themselves because I, I think there'll be very few Mancunians on the pitch um, unless uh, maybe Tyler Blackett gets on for United. If I if I think about it, um, off the field, uh, yeah, I mean uh, over the years I've seen some quite unseemly sights at Manchester derbies. Um, I know that there was a there was a fight after the last season. That this season's in uh, Eastlands. Um, I remember going to the semi-final at Wembley in 2011, uh, getting off the tube, and then seeing it instantly explode into a brawl as we got off the tube. Um, yeah, there's. There, there, I mean, actually, more. Actually, possibly more than the Everton v Liverpool thing. This one does seem to have the potential for fists to be flying. Uh, and as regards the nasty chants, yeah, there's a few flying around last season. I went to the game. I went to both of them actually last season. Um, actually, last season I was at the game at, uh, at the Etihad of Eastlands, uh, where um, I was I was in the press box, and uh, suddenly I realised that there were a load of City fans shouting and screaming at somebody saying. You know, you effing United this, you this, you that, all the other. And then I realised, I said to the bloke next to me, who are they shouting at? You know, this is, you know, I was sort of getting a bit worried about this. And then I realised that Michael Owen had decided he was going to take a seat in the press box. Mm-hmm. And my, poor Michael couldn't get out of his seat because every time he moved, someone would shout something at him. And eventually, as they peeled to the exits, I think everyone, every, say, you know, one in one in two would have a go at Owen as they sat <laughs> as, as he sat there pretending not to notice him. It was quite some sight. It was quite some sight. I find that incredible. She's Michael. I suppose the the best uh, yeah. moment of his Manchester United career did happen in a game against Manchester City. Um, such a short Manchester United career. Yeah, you don't think of him as a Man United legend in any in any way. Oh my no, God. apparently, except for, for these Man City fans. But you know, it's it's been. Um, 
Uh, are Manchester City fans excited at the prospect of their players trying for the first time in several weeks? Um, because this is a game I, I imagine that uh, all the City players want to win. It, it does seem as though they've been on a bit of a go slow uh, lately. I mean, how do you interpret what's been happening uh, with City's John? Is it just that if they don't feel the title is a realistic, if they don't feel that they can maybe win the title, they just sort of down hills? Well, or is it the down tools every other season? I, I don't know. Um, I actually went. I saw City at Palace on Monday. Um, they had a lot of possession, but they did very little with it. Uh, they are. I think the go slow is a good description, um, and, and the, the pace with which they play is certainly a lot slower. Now, if you think about them last season, when they used to begin games by absolutely blowing away their opposition. They would go straight from the you know the starters gun almost, uh, pass them to death, score a lot of early goals, uh, and then the game would be won. That hasn't been the case all season, especially not away from home. Um, and I think the thing is also um, Manuel Pellegrini has to be brought into question. Um, he either doesn't have the players or he doesn't trust the players to play a formation other than four four two. Now. Um, in the Premier League, if you go about ten years, you would have teams. If, if you if you played four four two and you had better players in your position, they would probably be playing four four two as well. You would win the game. That's how it worked, and that's certainly how it worked for Sir Alex Ferguson back in those days. Um, City have been worked out quite a bit, and uh, players like Yaya Torre um, aren't able to be, aren't given the freedom that they once were. Um, City themselves seems to get a bit ratty with each other. I mean, if you actually look at the game the other night, uh, there was a, there was a few complaints about Jason Punchin's free kick. And uh, I, don't, I was watching the TV coverage afterwards in the press room. There seemed to be a suggestion from Joe Hart asking, how the hell did that get over the wall? Then that's pinpointed over the fact that Yaya Toure didn't put his head up properly to head it away. They're getting ratty with each other because it's coming apart at the seams. At that, question, at that point, you have to... Uh, Ask about ask if Manuel Pellegrini, a coach, brought in. Let's remember for his holistic qualities, is able to motivate the team and keep them together. What's your take on what Manchester United are doing at the moment, John? The, it's, it, they're in a, quite a strong position now, obviously, and there there is still this outside shot that Chelsea could fall apart uh, a little bit. The results, in fairness, have have been consistent for quite a long time, but it seems only in recent weeks maybe that the the really big results and the big performances have come. Yeah, I I, 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 do, I wonder if Van Hal's philosophy has taken hold, or he's got a bit lucky. <laughs> now, um, Juan Mata playing at the right side of a three. I don't think we thought that was going to work for Manchester United, but it seems to. He struck up a hell of a partnership with Ander Herrera, a player who Louis van Gaal uh, seems to think not a lot of. The reports coming out of United were that they were not happy with his training performances. Um, go through the rest of the team. I mean, Fellaini is a player that a lot of Manchester United fans don't want to see in the team, but has actually come through. For Van Hal, he really um, has. I any time I watch Manchester United, Fellaini, if you're, what's a footballer supposed to do? They're supposed to affect the game, be effective. And to me, he's one of their most effective players when he's out there. Uh, in, in winning the, the ball, getting on with the play. Well, you know, in the in the in this in this sort of job, in the in the very unique role that he would have in that team, because nobody else really plays like him. 
No, and, and I suppose we talked about we talk about predictability. He's an unpredictable player. Um, he offers something totally different to the rest of the United players. He also adds a bit of bite. Um, and if, if you're going to play a pressing game, if you're going to have a player who plays a relatively advanced position, then having somebody like Fellaini sat on the opponent's defender stopping him using the ball, that is going to be quite effective, yeah. Um, I think he's been decent all season. There are, If you speak to a lot of United fans, though, they still cannot forgive him for being, I don't know, for being what? Uh, a symbol of the Moyes era, uh, a player who perhaps doesn't fit into their pretensions of what a Manchester United player should be. But ever since that, I mean, he came on, it was a game in October against West Brom. He came on at half-time. Uh, if you remember, the West Brom Twitter account said, aha, it, on comes Fellaini. He scored within six or seven mm-hmm. minutes. And in a way, he hasn't really looked back since then. Yeah. Um it's because, it's because you just expect a Manchester United player to have more ability on the ball. I mean, that's the reason. You know, they're looking at this guy and thinking this, you know, Fellaini, for all of his, even in some of the good games, I'm trying to think of a it's game. Not that he do, it's not that he doesn't have ability on the ball, though. It's but just, the ball bounces off his shin sometimes in a clumsy way. You know, he's doing, he, he does some things that, that players, that most players can't do. You know, I mean, this this chest control that he has, the kind of strength that he has. Um, he's got qualities that most players don't don't can't dream of, but lacks some of the basic kind of slickness that you would expect from an attacking player, Manchester. Which is why, I mean, the question here, John, is: Do you do you think he actually has a future there? Despite the fact that he, you could have a make a good argument that he's been their best player this season, maybe it's still just not going to happen for him there. Maybe it's just not possible for it to, to happen for him there. Well, maybe he has already reached the, the highest point of his Manchester United career. We don't. We that, that, that is possible. Um, I, I would imagine that Van Hal sees him as a very useful player to make use of. Um, you have to say that compared to the likes of Di Maria, although Di Maria has been effective in terms of assists, uh, he's suited to the Premier League. Um, he's suited to the grind of the Premier League. I suspect, say, Manchester United do return to the Champions League. Um, he might not be quite so effective. He's the type of player, uh, reminds me a bit of Peter Crouch. Remember Peter Crouch's place playing Europe and every time he touched the ball, the referee would blow for a foul. He's that type of player that just doesn't seem to perhaps fit into the, the, the extra slickness of that type of, um, of football. I, I don't know. Fellaini um, has proved people wrong. Um, I think... Uh, it's strange, isn't it, to consider that David Moyes bought a player who could play in the position that Louis van Gaal's playing him in and chose to play him as a defensive midfielder. That shows you just, well, I suppose the loss of nerve that David Moyes suffered. Yep, John, we'll leave it. Well, very quick prediction and in a couple of words. Who do you think is going to win at the weekend? Um, oh, no, don't do this. Um, United should win it. Uh, because of the form they're in and the form that Manchester City right. are not in. Let's say that. No, that, that, that makes us uh, uh, as logical a case as any, John. Great stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers. I really don't get why there's any reason to get rid of Marion uh, Fellaini or why there's even a, a school of thought out there, unless he's in some way disruptive in the dressing room, Ken, because even if he's not going to be, any, if he's nobody's idea of a superstar player, mm. he's clearly been effective for Van Gaal this season. No reason why he can't be next season. If he's happy enough to play a certain role and be a substitute and be a guy who's thrown on sometimes, it just doesn't make any sense to me why you'd sell him unless somebody's offering you 50 million. Well, uh, because 
if you have a player who it's I mean it's the problem with Fellaini is that he does not fit with anyone's imaginary Manchester United. You know what I mean? There's no like given that given his obvious technical shortcomings and the, he does have technical he has big technical advantages like as you're saying there are not a lot of players that can do some of the things that Fellaini does really well. But you expect a higher level of basic control. You expect more skill from Manchester United. I mean, he was an outstanding player for Everton, but Everton are not a team who necessarily have top-class players in, in every position. They can't really afford it. Someone like Fellaini is, is, is a really good player for Everton. For Manchester United, you expect a better standard of player. And so, if you've got Fellaini in the... And, and he's deserved to play all this season. But you say better standard of player. Again, mm. I think he's a good standard player because he affects what's going on in the pitch. I, mm. I don't think he's the most skillful guy who's ever played. And if Van Hal is as big a personality as we all think he is, surely he should he should be thinking, well, if I want to keep this guy, if I need him to provide a different dimension to the team, who cares what the idea of a Manchester United player is supposed to be? Well, it There's loads be, of them, Mata, Di Maria, all these guys. It would be great if you had, if you could have a situation where Maron Fellaini was there, always ready to answer the call. And in, in any game, any given game where things are not going well, you say, okay, Fellaini, you're coming on and we're going to start using some long balls here. We want you getting running, getting onto those uh, high balls. This will give him something different to think about. And, uh, you know, a plan B. You know, the managers are always looking for a plan B. The problem with the plan B is that he's a human being. If he was, if he was like, a, you know, a robot, then he would be happy just to come on when called upon. But actually, Fellaini is thinking, well, why am I in the team? If I say plan B comes on and plan B, you know, heads one in and knocks another one down and you win 2-1 when you were losing 1-0, plan B expects to be plan A now. Yeah. You know what I mean? He, if he... Um, it's it's difficult to sort of keep a player just as a backup. Either he deserves to be in the team or he doesn't. Well, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer was, was that for a number of years. He is a... I mean, and what, what a, how rare is it to find a player who who is actually prepared to do that? Like, Solskjaer had some deep humility. Like, as though he felt grateful to be... He, he felt grateful right to the end to be playing for Manchester United. Most players are not like that. Most players get used to the idea. They might be grateful at first, but then, you know, say Raheem Sterling mm. two years ago, oh, I'm, I'm just such an honour to play for Liverpool. Now it's like, <laughs> I need 180 grand. So, so that, that's the problem. If I don't think that he is good enough to be a, a, a real first team, a long-term first team. I think Manchester United can afford to have a better player. Ken, yep. You're sweating buckets there. I'm going to have to leave this podcast because you, you are burning up with Derby Fever. We're going to have to end this. Have a a lie down. Have a little lie down for a while. Still a couple of days to go. That's the end of this one. Do have a listen. We're going to put another show out a little bit later on today. Looking ahead to Andy Lee's world title fight. And uh, what else are we going to chat about in that one? My mind's Oh, the US Masters. Yeah, just the biggest golf tournament in the world is on at the moment. So plenty uh, plenty of interest there for you, hopefully. Thanks for listening to this show. Thanks again. Actually, one more thing. Just keep those headphones in for another few seconds. The Irish Times Fantasy Golf is back and better than ever, there's 15 grand up for grabs. It's free to enter. Now, I'm no maths whiz, but that sounds like a low-risk, high-reward policy to me. So get involved. Go to fantasygolf.irishtimes.com. Fantasygolf.irishtimes.com. Now you can go. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.